Well, since we're speaking about 47 Ronin, I will uh, pick a, a moment from that. And uh, one of the lines that uh, we shared together, Sonata Wasamanaida, was a moment that uh, during the course of filming, we, we did the scenes in English, but then we would do the scenes in Japanese as well. Um, and there was a moment working with Hiro-san, who plays Oishi, the general of the 47 Ronin. Um, remarkable actor and, and, and person. And uh, there's a scene where he's very down. He's lost men. He's made the wrong decision. He thinks he's questioning everything that he's doing. And my character comes out and tries to lift him up. And he lifts him up with some tough love in a way. And the line that we came with was like, what could I say to him to bring him back? And it was basically saying, you know, to remember who you are. You are a samurai. Sonata wa samurai da. And we did this scene in Japanese, and uh, um, you know, Hiro-san, you know, took that in, and uh, he had tears. We both had tears, you know, like just it was because he was so down, and and then doing the scene in Japanese touched something for him and for us, and uh, that was something that I'll remember forever. <laughs> Welcome to another exciting episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. I am your host, Troy, and with me is my best friend, Brad. How are you this evening, Brad? I'm doing great, man. We are recording on a weird night, so I feel a little bit out of our rhythm. Not gonna lie. Yes, but listen, we got to get this out of the way. We had a programming snafu, I think. Is that is that the as, technical As term? in we, you mean I. I wasn't going to throw you under the bus, but some of us looked to make sure that we had the movie that we were going to talk about and ended up watching the movie, but some didn't. To, to be fair, okay, the situation goes like this. I log all the movies that I buy in an app so I can say, oh, I have it, or I can get a hold of it. I had The Fall on Blu-ray, and I have it somewhere, now, do you, but when you say you I, have it... I have the case. You have the case. I know where the case is. But you don't have the movie in the case. So when I went to open it to put it in the Blu-ray player, the disc was not there. To be fair, then I said, oh, that's fine. I'll just buy it on digital. I went to do that, and it is literally impossible to get. There are ways to get it. But we were, we were we, trying to do this I, legitimately. I don't like to do that. Yes, we were and, doing a legitimate find here. And if I can't get it, um, people who listen to this podcast can't get it digitally. It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to put it out to talk about a movie that is literally impossible to get. Because if you go on eBay, a good pristine edition of The Fall from 2006 goes for about $100. That is ridiculous. It is what they call out of print. So, um, yeah. So we had to do a little audible and um, <laughs> I text you Friday and said, Hey, I got a problem. I can't watch the fall. And then, so we decided to do uh, 47 Ronin from 2013. 
So we are doing that movie instead of the fall. So if you, if you somehow were looking for us to do the fall today, I'm sorry. It will be in the future at some point in time. Yes, that that and so the key here is we'll talk about it when we know that more people can play along. I had no idea that it was that hard to get a hold of. And of course, it's just sitting in my unwatched pile for the last I don't know how many years. So I, I knew I had it, but yeah, when when you texted me and and of course I had watched it already. I and I felt bad about that. No, no, no. Let's let's talk about why you should feel bad, Brad. So I, <laughs> I, I'm so sad we can't talk about this film, but I do want to talk about one part of this film specifically. We're going to talk about the monkey? I, I feel like you set me up on this one. So if anybody goes back and listens to some of the episodes, specifically the last few, we, we talked about a film, Speed Racer, which had an amazing performance from a monkey. It was probably the best performance out of that film. Some might say Oscar-worthy I would agree. I think he got shortchanged in not getting at least a nomination. Then a few episodes go by and we do another action-packed film, Cutthroat Island, which also has a great performance by a monkey. I want to play a clip for you, Brad, because I I think we had this discussion about monkeys and I feel like you picked the fall on purpose um, to upset me. So I just want you to listen to this clip real quick. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. I do like the monkey that was actually reloading all the guns. That was cool. Yeah. With the little... Uh, He was holding the guns. Well, they they were giving him the gun, and he was putting the little... Is he loading it? Yeah, he was loading it. He was putting the ball. I mean, I'm always happy to see a monkey in a film. I'm with you. I I, I got to say, if... Thank goodness the monkey lives at the end. So, spoiler. The monkey makes it. Uh, King Charles is good. And if... You have a monkey as a strong supporting character. I'm I'm in. Like I like your movie. Now, if the monkey is obnoxious, I I'm not in on that at all. But I, I do what think about, a monkey can swing what about, one way or another. Uh, in my opinion. Outbreak because that has a monkey, but it has I that's like, that's that's like patient obnoxious. zero. Yeah, but that yeah. monkey was obnoxious. Okay. Yeah, he just that's not a good example. No, the monkey. Uh, the, the monkey and the clinis or he's a orangutan um, in every which way but loose and any which way you can. Right turn Clyde. Yeah. That's that an eight. Tr- but that is yeah, a, okay. <laughs> it's not a monkey. No. Okay. Well, then my theories shot the shit. No, right. no veterinarians on this scientific show. on you. God, okay. I get, we stopped science after the quicksand discussion. <laughs> I thought we were still in the science. Clyde portion. is a monkey. So, Brad, we, we a few episodes talked about uh, my theory about monkeys in films and how much I like them, especially the non-obnoxious ones. And you bring a film which has a great monkey in it, whose character is called Darwin. And, and what happens to that monkey, Brad? Because I specifically stopped the movie to start texting you at, at a particular point in this film. Uh, I believe the monkey gets shot, correct? He gets pulverized he gets shot and then they have this whole sequence where the monkey is dying with a big gaping bullet hole in its chest while he's trying to show this butterfly they're saving private ryan this monkey (laughs) it is oh my god it is the saddest thing in film of all i mean this is what episode 43 and and we finally come to a film that broke me it wasn't under the skin It, it wasn't transgressive cinema it was the fact that you picked a film where they decided not only to shoot the monkey and kill it, but give it this long, drawn-out death scene and kind of zoom in on this large bullet hole in its chest. And this is an adorable monkey. This, 
the monkey was one of the highlights of this film. It was a fantastic monkey. And, and after Speed Racer and Cutthroat Island, you, you choose this film. I feel like you did it on purpose. There was no malice involved. I promise. I, was this because was I didn't like Under innocent. the Skin? And then you, I saw, you're like, oh, I hey, the- I'm going to set him up with a, with a monkey movie where the monkey dies. It doesn't just die. I mean, Brad, I was bawling. I was bawling. A grown man in his 40s bawling over this monkey. I, I promise you, I had seen The Fall way back in 2007. So 14 years ago, I did not remember anything about the monkey. I'm sorry. I feel like it's an elaborate ruse where you're like, look, I don't even have a copy of the fall, but I know about this monkey. (laughs) And because he just didn't like my last pick, I'm going to make him watch this monkey film. And then I'm going to come back and do an audible and we're going to pick a Keanu Reeves movie. I feel like he did this on purpose. I wish I was that cunning, but I, I did not have the foresight to lay down such an elaborate plan. All right. I'm sorry. It's okay. I, I was really sad we, over that monkey. We, you know, the, the worst part is the fall won't be like a movie we do until like another three or four months and you'll have to watch that movie again. I don't, I don't know if I can, man. <laughs> I, I've saved my notes and it may be one of those where, dude, I'll watch it up to a point and maybe I'll skip a chapter and just assume the monkey is alive and, you know, hanging out with the monkey on Cutthroat Island loading guns or something. I don't know. That was really upsetting. I just want you to know how upset I was over that monkey. I know you've, you berated me with text messages. Literally on Saturday morning, I woke up to you to a text that said, I'm still mad at you. And it was, it, it was it so kind sad. of broke my heart. Yeah, it was horrible. All right, moving on. I'll get over <clears> this. <throat> I, I feel like I'm going to need some will therapy. I, no, hey, I'm going to go to therapy and I will learn to forgive. I'll, I'll be okay. Okay. Um, so you, you, you called an audible, you, you picked 47 Ronin from 2013. Why, why this one? I'm just curious. This was just one that was in the back, my back pocket in case something like this happened because we do talk about some obscure stuff and things that did not do exactly well or were well received. So there's always a chance where something is hard to get. You own everything. So I knew you know, it's probably not going to be a, a difficult task for you, but, um, well, this you know, readily, for me, this is readily available, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I believe it's on Netflix now. And you know how Netflix does like their top 10 of the day or the week or whatever. Right. <clears throat> the other day, 47 Ronin was in the top 10. Seriously? Yes. Okay. But I had not seen 47 Ronin at all. Um, so it was a, it was a, a first time watch for me. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you'd seen yeah, this before. Yeah, I, I had not. Um, this was kind of after my period to where I would see everything that came out in the theater. So, you know, that time from like 2002 to 2012, like I saw everything that came out and this just happened to be after that. Um, it's a samurai movie adjacent. The Ronin, I guess, exactly, you know, technically. Um, well, we, we can start there. So yeah, this yeah. is based on an actual historical event in Japan. So do you know the story? I, I do a little bit. And, and the, the thing when you talk about this movie, it's really hard to get like 300 out of your mind as well. It, it seems like they're literally like the same story, but you substitute samurais for what Spartans and 
the yeah. same thing, really. I, I can see that. And you know, v- you have a small group of people, yeah. you know, fighting off invaders or whatever, you know, so. Yeah, so. Let, but let's but enlighten me with the story, if you will. Well, so surprisingly, for those who have seen the film, there are a lot of elements that are in the film that are very close to what happened, minus the witches and the Tengu and, and sort of the fantasy elements to it. But traditionally, the story, 47 Ronin, it tells um, about a group of samurai who were left leaderless after their feudal lord was compelled to perform seppuku for assaulting a court official. Now, that court official that he insulted is named Kira. After waiting and planning a year, the ronin avenged their master's honor by killing Kira. So they, they spent an entire year after they wandered you know, that area as, as sort of masterless samurai. That's, that's where the term ronin comes from. And once they finished the act of killing Kira, they were then obliged to commit seppuku for the crime of murder. And this occurred on December 14th, 1702. And we'll talk about the act of seppuku in detail when we get to thoughts on the film, because I think it's very interesting, especially how something so gruesome is, is just really portrayed in cinema altogether. Here's, here's one of the things, though. The, the film is 47 Ronin, and it is about 47 masterless samurai who, you know, plan for a year, go and, and take revenge. But only 46 of the Ronin committed seppuku. Some say one was spared because of his age. Um, and if you do a little bit more research, it probably has more to do with ranking because some people saw this 47th person not as a samurai, although they participated in the entire um, assassination attempt or not really an attempt, but they were very successful. But one one person that pops up and it's a historical figure is Oishi and they talk in the film, Oishi had a son. And that is true from a historical standpoint. And Oishi's son was 16 at the time of the attack, and he was part of the 46 who committed seppuku. So he committed seppuku with his father. Okay. But, that, but that's the tale of the 47 Ronin at, at its core. And it's celebrated on the December 14th of every year because, again, from, from a Japanese culture, it represents this tale of honor and redemption. And it really kind of has reached a mythical proportion because if you look at Japanese art, it's, it's all throughout the art and there's tons of movies made about it. Tons, probably, you know, seven or eight. Yeah. I saw that this was like the seventh or eighth, like telling of 47 Ronin in cinema. Yeah. I was, I was trying to piece it all together. So if you go back to 1941, you have the 47 Ronin. Then in 1958, the loyal 47 Ronin in 1962, Chushigiru, um, which I, I think that's the one with Toshiro Mufuni. I, I think that's the one I've seen. I've, I've, I've only seen one of these. Then in 1978, they had the fall of Echo Castle, 47 Ronin in 1994, which is a Japanese film, the last Ronin in 2010. And that led up to this one, 47 Ronin, which was done in 2013. And what makes this movie unique is it's sort of the first Western or American film done out of Hollywood about the topic itself. So that's a little bit of history about the tale that inspired this film. So there wasn't a white guy within the clan of the 47? I, I don't think so. I, okay. Again, if you go back to the, to the tale, they, <laughs> it, it is a very Japanese tale. There are no witches, no Tengu. It's, it's very basic. It's more of a political drama than anything. And if you look at some of the other films about this, they take it very literally. Obviously, 
you know, they play with the narrative a little bit and maybe exaggerate some aspects of it. But um, I know, at least from the film that I saw in 1962, it, it comes off more as a traditional samurai film or, or, you know, something that has a lot more political intrigue to it. What makes this one unique is the fantasy elements. And, of course, you have a white guy who ends up really kind of saving Japan, more or less. White guy savior. Yep. White guy savior syndrome. So, um, Do you... I know the answer to this, but just for discussion purposes, Samurai movies, love, correct? Yes. Oh, love absolutely. Samurai movies? Yes. Yeah. And, and I don't know about you, my favorite, well, it's not really a Samurai film, but I feel like Samurais have, um, are, are always throughout them, but I, I love the Zatoichi series. So it's the mm-hmm. Blind yep. Swordsman, right? But yep. again, you look at any of the Toshiro Mufuni or Kira Kurosawa films, I mean, they're all fantastic, and, and I do love the traditional samurai film, but I got to say, if always given a choice, if I'm going to go back and watch, um, I don't know, Japanese cinema, and it's something that I'm going to pick, I, I gravitate to, you know, the 20-plus Zatoichi films. I, I find those extremely entertaining, but if I'm, I'm going to pick a, a samurai film, you're, you're going to go with something like Kira Kurosawa. I mean, he, he really made that genre... And what's interesting about the samurai film, it directly inspires a lot of the, you know, Westerns, especially the spaghetti Westerns, et cetera. Yep. Yeah. You can, I mean, Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai. I mean, they're, all that stuff is so closely related. You know, for me, a movie that we did back in the day for the pretension, 13 Assassins. I mean, I remember seeing that and I've gone back and watched that in the last 45 minutes of that movie is absolutely stunning. Um, I, like I've said before in some of the podcasts, like we were not a Western family in my house. So I have kind of zero context on Westerns. Mine was samurai movies. And I don't know why that was such a thing, but I remember seeing, you know, throne of blood and, and seven samurai and, you know, hidden fortress and all those, um, growing up and that's just kind of how I kind of cut my teeth on movies. So um, samurai movies kind of played a big part in, you know, who I became as a, as a movie viewer and connoisseur, I guess. It's, it's an interesting genre and I, I feel it, it does. And I, I don't know what you think about this. Cause when we talk about the samurai films in general, I think Japan is such a fascinating culture in general. Yes. And, and it's, it's on my bucket list. Like I want to go, I want to spend a couple of weeks there. Um, and, and what's funny is my son, if you were to pick any country and go, where do you want to go? I mean, Japan's top of list for him. So we're super excited if we could ever put that trip together. But the thing with samurai films is I think it represents a small faction of the history of Japan. Um, but I, I love it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean the samurai represents so much, you know, loyalty, uh, honor, you know, all that stuff is, is in their DNA and aesthetically they look awesome and they carry two swords and, you know, all the things that go with being a samurai, um, you know, make for entertaining, uh, movies and TV and all that. So, do you, you know, do you remember what, do you remember the first, I don't know, movie TV show that introduced you to the samurai concept? I remember mine and it has nothing to do with Akira Kurosawa or the traditional samurai film. I, I know, I remember exactly where I, I saw it and I'm like, what is that? And I, I, 
I want to know more about what that is. Uh, I mean, mine's going to be like a traditional one. I remember seeing Ran because it was in color. And that was the first time I saw a samurai movie in color. And it was like one of those things that was like, at the time, I just assumed that all samurai movies were black and white because I had always <laughs> seen them in black and white. So, you know, I th- believe that came out in 85. And, you know, I was a wee lad at that point in time. So years later, you know, I'm watching it with my father and I'm like, oh, they, they can be in color. I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I think the first introduction, and again, I didn't see it when it debuted. I think I came across it as a kid. Um, and full disclosure, I, I think I was more into ninja films and stuff like that and, and sort of the Hong Kong Shaw Brothers stuff way before the Samurais. But I remember growing up and the first time I saw a Samurai and I was totally fascinated by it. And it's a true character. And, and again, it was done for comedic sake, was John Belushi's Samurai. Oh, from SNL. Saturday Night Live, which yeah. absolutely cracked me up. But I, I couldn't figure out what he was doing. And, and that's what sort of led me down that path of... Cocaine. The answer was cocaine. Cocaine, yeah. It was, <laughs> what, what is this guy trying to represent? But yeah, that, that was my introduction to the Samurai fiction. And then from there, obviously, you, you go down the rabbit hole and there's tons of stuff out there. But... Tonight, we're talking about a more recent film, 2013's 47 Ronin. And this one, I mean, the whole idea of the podcast is that we're going back and we're reevaluating films that bombed, either financially or the critics just tore it apart. This one falls in both buckets, right? Both buckets. Yes, it does. Okay, so let's start with the numbers, Brad. How did this sucker do when it was unleashed on the theater-going audience? So it's interesting on the budget. Um, initially they gave the director $175 million context for that being is this was his first feature length film. It required to be, uh, reshot and re-edited. And so it tacked on another, say $50 million upon that. So the rough estimation on the total budget of this movie is $225 million. So 175, see, I had always thought 175 was the final budget, but you're saying that was the initial budget. That was the initial budget. It went up. Okay. Yes. Two, so think 225, roughly. It comes out and it makes $152 million. So it fails to make um, so was that, back its initial. Is that worldwide or domestic? That is international and oh, domestic. That oh. is total. Um, domestically, only makes $38 million. Ouch. Um, Ow. Yeah, open, opening weekend, it barely, barely gets uh, just under $10 million, $9.9 million opening weekend. And so we, we kind of talk about this in the way movies – and like releases happen and it's important that especially with movies that are going to have a short period in the theater, you know, this is getting a wide release for six weeks. So essentially this movie has to make as much money as it can in six weeks. So if you're starting out at $10 million, the next week you can pretty much estimate that you're going to lose 50%. So then you're looking at $5 million. And then the next week you're looking at, you know, so I'm between 50 and 75% drop off. So then you're looking at, you know, $1.6 million a third week. So then you're just cutting half, 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 you know, it's basically a half life of a movie by the sixth week, you know, it makes 137 K. So that's why, you know, having that big opening weekend, then you're cutting it in half, cutting it in half, 
you know, you get longer legs. Well, we, now that's not we that's not say, universal for all movies either. Yeah, but we should say but, that's the traditional rule pre-pandemic because with COVID and everything else, that entire model has been oh just yes. thrown out the door. So movies movies will play out there for months, and you'll see something come out and be a big box office hit simply because there's not a lot out there and it, it has a longer shelf life. But back in 2013, to your point, if it doesn't come out swinging in that first week it really is going to struggle to make that budget back. Yes. Yes. Um, <clears throat> now I will say the release date of this, <laughs> the release date of this movie was December 25th, 2013. So Jesus and this movie <laughs> are celebrated on the same day. Makes total um, sense to me. Makes total sense. Yeah. You know, cause you want to see a, a, a samurai movie on the birth of Christ. Yeah, well, um, man. But to, to, do, and I'm sure. Again, I know the answer to this. Do your Do you take your family to see a movie on Christmas every year? Not on Christmas, but but around around yeah, Christmas time. Yep, that, yeah. That's, that's I mean, yeah. That is a busy time for theaters. So, you know, that's not crazy to release this movie in the December because lots of people go to the theater that week. Um, you're off work. You know, you just you know, your the whole family's there anyway. So let's go see a movie. The problem with doing that is. There's other movies that release during that time period. It, it's like and the summer movies. I, I don't know. You've, you've got the summer movie that now kind of starts in April, goes through August. But now with the holiday, you only get a couple of weeks, but you get the same. I don't know. It's more crowded, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm going to say like movies and you're going to be like, wow, that came out then. Out of the Furnace, which I believe is a Christian Bale movie. Oh, yeah. That was... Uh... I remember that one. I never saw it, but I remember the trailers yeah. and everything for it. Um, the Hobbit, the second one, Desolation of Smog. Um, Which is interesting because yeah. this one is definitely trying to capitalize on Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. But keep going. Yes. Um, Only Lovers Left Alive, which I like that movie quite a bit. Um, American Hustle. Okay. Her. Uh, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty which is, uh, I believe, is that Ben Stiller directed that movie? I, yes, I remember that. I don't, I don't think I ever saw it, but I, I do remember him doing that, yeah. Uh, Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. Lone Survivor, which is Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Here's an interesting movie. Uh, Nymphomaniac Volume 1 and 2 come oh out. Lars? On, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the movie Grudge Match, which is Sylvester, uh, Sylvester Stallone. Stallone and is is that Robert, Robert De Niro. De Niro? Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. That is a huge movie. Labor Day. Labor Day. I have no idea. Oh, that is uh, Brolin. Josh Brolin. I believe that is Jason Reitman, I think, directed that movie. Okay. And then that uh, Enemy, the uh, Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Villeneuve movie. So you can see a lot of choices in December. Well, I don't know. I don't know if 47 Ronin was like, I, uh, I don't know. Well, it's so that, that month in and of itself represents exactly what you get with the holiday season. You get the popcorn flicks, but then you also get this slate of films that is really trying to go for that Oscar, right? Yep. So yep. You, you get both family entertainment, big budget action, and then 
all of these films that are really vying for sort of an, a best picture, best actor, but it's just, yeah. It's American hustle is like yeah. your stereotypical. We want to be nominated for best picture. We're going to have someone probably nominated for best actor, best supporting, you know, lone survivor, maybe, I don't know, but yeah, you're right. Like that is a time for your polar opposites when it comes to movies. You got why your popcorn. Would, yeah. But why would you release this thing the same time period as another Hobbit film? That just seems like you're shooting yourself in the foot right out of the gate. Yeah, because I'm sure you saw this doing the research. Like the Hobbit is one of the things they wanted to model this thing after. Yep. And it's not like this movie was a surprise because the Hobbit, the desolation of smog, I think is the second one. So they knew like this, this movie was coming. Um, It wasn't a surprise. So to still kind of keep that date. um, And we have to also put it in context this stars Keanu Reeves. This is 10 years-ish after the Matrix series is over and one year before uh, John Wick. So you're not getting, you know, ultra mega star Keanu Reeves. You're getting my light is kind of faded a little bit. Yep. Keanu Reeves. I'm still a super nice guy and everyone loves me, but I'm probably not the biggest star in the person to lead a movie yeah he's not commanding the salary at this point or the notoriety and and another thing is it's keanu reeves and then a bunch of japanese people that most americans have never even heard of so um i to give we'll get into it we'll get into it okay (laughs) okay let's talk about the critics Uh, this one this one uh i don't know if this is the lowest score we've had on this show but it's one of the lowest I could remember. It can't be lower than Solar Babies. Uh, this is at 16% on Rotten Tomatoes. Maybe uh, and a 48% <laughs> on uh, the audience score. Solar Babies, I don't remember what that was. Now I'm going to look it up because I think Solar Babies might have been higher. I feel like Solar Babies. Oh, Solar me, Babies was zero. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the so, litmus test right there. So Yeah. Do you think that you think Solar Babies is the worst movie we've done? In Ooh, that's a tough one. I don't know. My plan is if if we get to the one-year mark, I think we will. There's a good chance we're getting there. It's coming up, yeah. I, I would like to sit back and think about all of the films uh, because what I've liked about doing this podcast is the movies that you've picked or I've picked, it hasn't been everything that we've seen. So as an example, this is one that it's a first-time watch for you. Solar Babies was a first-time watch for me when we watched it. This one I saw in the movie theater – now, I think we saw The Hobbit first, and this was something that only Cameron and I went to see. So, I, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know if Solar Babies is the worst, but I will be curious to go back at the one-year mark to, to look at all the films that we did. And I, I, it would be interesting to say, what was the worst film we did? And then even look at it and go, what movie did you think you were going to like because you've seen it before? And then when you watch it again with maybe a more critical eye, it didn't turn out so hot. So I'll have tons of questions at the one year mark, but so far I can confidently say, I think solar babies is in the top three. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to read you the, the uh, critics consensus and you tell me if this is way too harsh. Okay. Uh, 47 Ronin is a surprisingly dull fantasy movie. One that leaves its talented international cast stranded with one dimensional roles. Okay. I mean, it really doesn't talk about, I don't know. I don't want to spoil what our thoughts are, but I, I feel <laughs> okay. like, again, that's just a consensus. So it, it, it's very concise, but 
they leave a lot out. Yeah, so I talked about the budgets and all that. What else do you want to know about pre-release stuff? Well, no, let's let's talk about the people behind the camera in front of the camera. <laughs> this this is interesting. So we're going to start with the director. Yeah, uh, let's Carl, talk about the director. Carl Wrench. Wrench? Carl. Carl. Yep, Carl Wrench. So you would expect somebody to, I don't know, helm a $200 million movie to be somebody of notoriety, somebody that the studio trusted, maybe he has a little bit of a track record to just make some interesting films. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give Disney and the Marvel Cinematic Universe this. They are good about bringing some just very directors in. And it's not just John Favreau doing it behind the scenes. But usually the director that they're putting in has a few movies under their belt. In Carl's case, before he started working on this, he did four short films from 1994 to 2012. Then his only movie that he's done is this one. And he shot another short film in 2015. So from a cinematic perspective, this guy really hasn't been doing a lot of work. And this was his one and only studio film. And I, I guess if you're, if you're going to you know, swing for the fences, you're, you're going for a $200 million budget. You, you know, one of the things I found very interesting, and I don't use Wikipedia for my only source of research, but it, it kind of is a nice sort of one pager on, on the film. When you look on this film on Wikipedia, the director has no Wikipedia page. And that to me is shocking that a person was given 200 and well, we'll say he was given $175 million to make a movie. And he doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Um, I have to assume that his four short films he did. They I, must be the greatest things of all time. I'm so curious to see him. I just want to go back and, and find time to watch him and find out, like, from a studio's perspective, if you saw these four short films, what inspired you to kind of go, this is the guy that we're going to give that type of budget. And, and originally $175 million and go, you are going to create something that is going to rival Lord of the Rings. Because I believe this is a universal picture. So they are chasing after... Uh, with Universal, it's always a franchise. I, I, with any studio, it's always a franchise. You start spending that kind of money, your hope is that it hits big on the first one and it gives you legs with your second, third, fourth film. Although with 47 Ronin, and we'll get to this in a minute, I don't know how you... If, if you're talking about a classic Japanese tale... I don't know how you're doing a sequel when 47 guys go storm the castle and then end up, you know, committing suicide at the end. Suicide, of it. Yep. So I also find it very interesting as well that his vision for the film leaned more towards gladiator. Yes. And the studio wanted more Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah. He wanted a very specific type of film. Real like a more realistic yes, telling drama, right? So he wants to tell, um, tale. He wants to tell the tale of the forty-seven Ronin in some type of artistic, but yet realistic way. And the studio is saying, "Hey, if we're putting a hundred and seventy-five dollars out there, hundred not hundred seventy-five dollars. <laughs> hundred seventy-five dollars is probably what this guy should have started with, but yes, hundred seventy-five yes. million. They're obviously saying, no, 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 we need a bit more spectacle. But, you know, I'll say this when we talk about the film. That $175 million is showing in terms of the costumes and the set design and everything else. Maybe they should have spent some more money on CGI, but we'll get there in a second. But let's yeah. talk about the screenplay and, and the people who wrote this. So the screenplay is by Chris Morgan and Hossein Amini. So Chris Morgan, 
I f- this is interesting. Fast he's, and the Furious. Fast and the Furious <laughs> franchise. That's kind of what he's known for. He did Wanted um, in 2008, Fast and Furious 2009, Fast 5 2011, Fast and Furious 6 2013. So you see where those are going. But, I mean, he's done a majority of the Fast and Furious movies. And Amini, I thought this was interesting, did Drive in 2011 in, um, you know, Ryan Gosling's film. I know you are a big fan of that. I am too. Yes, I am. And he also did Snow White and the Huntsman in 2012. The screen. What? To be fair, Drive, I don't know, does Drive have a thousand words in the whole? I guess it does, but it's it's not really more of, it's not a talkie movie. It, it's, it's that one film, if you're looking at all of the movies that these two screenwriters, I don't know, worked on, it was the film that surprised me. Like, I did not expect Drive to be in there. Snow White and the Huntsman, totally expected exactly, that to yep. be in here. All the Fast and Furious, absolutely expect all those to be in this type of film. Drive kind of shocked me a little bit. And then Screen Story by Chris Morgan and Walter Hamada. Now, you've got a samurai film. So what do you need in a samurai film, Brad? costumes no okay yeah costumes i'll give you that but we're talking action you're doing a big budget samurai oh, choreographer yeah so you've got stunt coordinator gary powell who worked on legend of zorro he did a lot of james bond films he was a stunt coordinator for casino royale in 2006 quantum of solace he's also done films like indian jones and the kingdom of crystal skull um unstoppable in 2010 so denzel washington Ooh. chris pine this was interesting. He was the stunt coordinator on Green Lantern from 2011. And again, another James Bond film, Skyfall 2012. Fight choreographers, you have Nikki Berwick, Stephen Oyong, and Peng Zhang. And Swordmaster, uh, Tashui Abe. Now, this guy has 117 stunt credits, according to IMDb, including, are you ready for this? Here's our Jackie Chan connection, Rush Hour 2 <laughs> from 2001. So we had to squeeze that in there. I feel yeah. like I feel like our podcast is always going to be like seven degrees of separation between Jackie or Quentin Tarantino. Yes. So, uh, but yeah, th- those are the people that are putting on the you know the swordplay, the moves, the action, and again for a samurai film, I think it's kind of interesting that your stunt coordinator is Gary Powell. So he's he's overseeing a lot of this, and your fight choreographers as well as your swordmaster you're getting a lot of Hollywood um, type artists behind the camera. But again, it's, it's a studio film, big budget studio film. So those are the people you're going to rely on. So those are the ones I just kind of wanted to highlight behind the camera. So let's talk about everybody in front of the camera. Now you hinted at this a little bit. Your, your main star is Keanu Reeves, right? Yes. And Keanu Reeves plays the character of Kai. He's the half breed. So this is a Japanese tale and everybody in this film is a notable Japanese actor, except one first one person. It's Keanu Reeves. Now, leading up to this in 2013, he was doing The Day the Earth Stood Still in 2008, Street Kings in 2008. So I don't think those were big films. They were studio films, but not huge successes. Then he I does- kind of like the, that movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. I'm not gonna lie, it's stupid and Jennifer weird. Connelly, right? Jennifer Connelly, like. And his performance is weird, but I remember seeing that in the theater and was like, okay, okay, I see what you're doing here. Keanu Reeves is kind of alien-like. I get it. Okay. Well, I, I haven't seen it. Surprisingly, I own it sitting on the two-watch pile. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Street Kings, I remember liking that a lot. And I think Chris Evans was in that, if I'm not mistaken. Wasn't he? 
Uh, I believe you're correct on that. Okay. And that was pre-Captain America. So he does those films. Then in 2009, does The Private Lives of uh, Pippa Lee. Have no idea what that is. Henry's Crime in 2010. Generation Um in 2012. Then he tries his hand at directing. And this is actually a really good film. Man of Tai Chi in 2013. So he starred in it, directed it. It, it's really good. And that comes out the same year as 47 Ronin. And like you said, the next film I think is another resurgence of Keanu's career, which is 2014's John Wick. Yep. And all of a sudden everybody's in love with Keanu Reeves again. Which begs the question, obviously, if 47 Ronin comes out in 2015, it does way more of a box office draw. I undoubtedly well, I, I think so now would it have come back with 200 million that's debatable yeah but it would have had a better chance with everybody kind of falling in love with Keanu Reeves again with John Wick and if this thing came afterwards and it was oh it's it's a Keanu Reeves I think man of Tai Chi would have done a heck of a lot better had it come out after John Wick I think I think that's a film that a lot of people forget about and if you like John Wick and you like Keanu Reeves, definitely go check that one out. I mean, yeah, Keanu, that was- Keanu Reeves loves action films. And he loves Asian action films. That really comes through in a lot of his interviews. Yeah, I mean, Matrix is essentially a wire foo Hong Kong movie. You know, it's oh, absolutely. You know, it's it's high concept. You're forgetting one important um, aspect of Mr. Keanu Reeves. Okay, enlighten me. Dog Star plays bass in a band called Dog Star. Very talented, renaissance-type guy. Hey, and apparently, like, literally is the nicest guy in the entire world. Like, you know, you see the pictures of him, like, standing up on the subway to give his seat to a, a lady and stuff like that. It's He oh. seems like a really nice guy, and I think by all accounts, he seems genuine. Yeah, I think he's super smart, too. I mean, I remember one of the interesting things when the Me Too movement was just sort of getting off the ground, and people were talking about... Hollywood actors, actresses, et cetera. I remember a lot of articles pointing out that Keanu Reeves is one of those folks that even when he was taking pictures with people, he wasn't hugging them. He wasn't really putting his arms around him. He just seems like a totally good guy, is totally self-conscious of the media, understands, you know, the environment he's working in. And I really feel like he just, regardless of what you think about his performances, I, I think he's a really good businessman and really understands like the industry he's working in dude he's been in the industry for almost 40 years yeah i, I he it is amazing how many resurgence i, I don't know second third uh, what you would i don't know what you would call it but every once in a while all of a sudden a film comes out counter reeves is at the top and he stays there for a little bit and he kind of goes back into the background and then hits it again with a big franchise i mean we're getting john wick what four and five now yeah, which is crazy to me, considering you know <laughs> how late in his career he discovers that character, and and then he's coming out and saying, "Hey, I'll I'll play that all the way up to the point I'm in a wheelchair." So yeah, you know, this is the guy that was in Speed, like, yeah. and we thought, "Oh, Speed's going to be the biggest thing he's ever going to be in," and then it was like, "Oh wait, this guy's in the Matrix," and then you're like, "Oh wow, oh now this guy's in John Wick." You know, he's had, yeah, you know, Bill and Ted is huge too, like so many series that just rely basically on him. It's fascinating. It is. I and don't he, know. I he, don't know of an actor who has 
that many series. Well, and I love the fact that he does stuff like My Own Private Idaho. I mean, he does independent film. So he he is very comfortable going back and forth. And we'll talk about his performance in this film. But I'll say this, as an actor, I love the fact that he takes a lot of different chances. He goes after different scripts. I mean, if you look at the stuff, I, I've never heard of this stuff outside of maybe Street Kings and The Day the Earth Stood Still, but from 2008 to 2013, outside of Man of Tai Chi, I, I don't even know what those films are about, much less have ever seen them. So I love the fact that he does so many different things. Exactly. Now, the next one we're going to talk about is Hiroki Sanada. So he's been on our show a few times. People will remember him from Sunshine in 2007, Speed Racer in 2008. And of course, just in a few weeks, Brad, we're going to get him in the new Mortal Kombat film. Yes, we are. He is Scorpion. And he, he played. We have to wait another week. It got moved back to the 23rd. I'm so disappointed. Well, they, you know, they wanted to give the, the monkey and the lizard more time to, you know. To fight. To yeah. fight, get some more money, which, hey, I'll, I'll hey, go see it again. Yes. I'm ready. Yes. Um, but he, he plays the character Oishi, and that is an actual historical character um, that led the 47 Ronin. You also get Ko Shibasaki as Mika. Now, the only film, when you look at her filmography, that just jumped out to me was 2000's Battle Royale. You've seen that one, right? Oh, absolutely. Folks, absolutely. if you want... Some One of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah. If you want great Japanese cinema that really pushes a lot of buttons, go watch Battle Royale. Forget, you know, things like The Hunger Games, all those kind of films. Battle Royale is where it's at. So Neutered in, like, in comparison. Yes, absolutely. Um, as Lord Kira, we get uh, Tadanabu Asano. And most people will know him. He's been actually in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's in the Thor movies, and he plays Hogan. And we also get uh, Rinko Kikuchi as the witch. She is in the Pacific Rim films, so mm-hmm. she was in both of those. Yep. This, so speaking of Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat, here as, we go. As the Shogun, we get Kerry Hiroki Tagawa, and most people will know him. As Shang Tsung. Shang Tsung in Mortal Kombat. But his film, if you look at all his stuff, that guy's been uh, he's Yeah, been he's been a in a ton of he's stuff. He's got a lot of credits. Your soul is mine. But it's so amazing that, again, $175 million on a cast that 90% is Japanese and then Keanu Reeves sort of fronting it all. It's 99% Japanese and 1% white. Absolutely. Which, like, I am all for. Like, great. But business-wise, I don't know if that's the best idea. That is crazy. That is so crazy. But, hey, look, if you're chasing something like Lord of the Rings, you're going to go for it, right? So let's talk before we get into thoughts on the film, on the filming and development. We touched on some of these. So Carl, the director, clashed with Universal right out of the gate, especially over the final version of the film. Universal wanted to make an effects-driven fantasy blockbuster and again, primarily they were chasing Lord of the Rings because Lord of the Rings just was a cash cow. Uh, now you have the studio coming out with The Hobbit, those three films. So you have a studio that's chasing after that. And they say, okay, well, let's take this and make its own property, throw a lot of money at it. And that's what the studio wanted. But Carl Wrench envisioned the film as more of a drama. And so you talked about Gladiator. The other one that comes up in the discussion is 2005's Kingdom of Heaven. So they wanted something or specifically the director wanted something that was an adventure. It was epic, but it was more drama. 
um, and less, you know, CGI, you know, witches and wizards and all that stuff, right? And listener, put a pin in Kingdom of Heaven because it will be talked about on this show at some point in time. Not anytime soon, but we will get to that. We will get to the director's cut of that movie. Oh, absolutely. So when executives at Universal um, saw an early cut of the film, they had concerns about the story and ordered script changes, right? So they also slated another week of shooting to make Keanu Reeves, his character, more integral within the film. So the film's budget goes from $175 million to, what, $225 million because of complex reshoots and a lengthy post-production period. Yeah, the re- I mean, they re-edited the movie. Um, <laughs> I saw that some of it was just like, hey, we're just going to do close-ups on Keanu Reeves' character. Yeah. Like, they're just close-ups. Like, okay. <laughs> and, and apparently they shot a lot of it in Japanese so that the, you know, main Japanese actors could get comfortable with the dialogue and deliver it as such. So it almost feels like there's two versions of the film out there. You get the English version and then you have a Japanese version that's sitting out there on the cutting room floor as well. Are you trying to tell me you want to release the Japanese cut? I'm not rushing out <laughs> to say that just yet. So as they're going through the post-production universal pulls Carl from the project during the editing stages late in 2012. And then universal chairwoman Donna Langley takes over the entire editing process. So they kick the director out and the chairperson for the studio comes in and says, I'm going to edit this thing. So it was originally scheduled to be released on November 21st, 2012, but because of all the reshoots and everything else, it gets moved to February 8th, 2013. But they were adding 3D effects because I do remember when Cam and I saw this in the theater, we did see it in 3D. And I got to say, it was impressive. There were some things that really pop in this film in terms of a 3D film. Remember 3D? I, I do. It was, you know, it's a cyclical thing, right? Every so often, it, it's going to come back. Don't worry about it. When Avatar 2 and 3, everybody's going to go after 3D again. But um, yeah, it goes from November 1st, 2012, gets pushed to eight, February 8th, 2013. Then they say, we're going to make a 3D film. Because again, if you're going to get your $200 million back, that 3D price tag on the ticket's going to help yeah, that you premium. get premium. Yep. And once again, it's moved to December 25th, 2013 on Baby Jesus Day um, in order to account for the reshoots and post-production. So here's the other thing <laughs> I thought that was well, in. Yep. Before you do, release on home media April 1st of 2014 so april fool's day on 2014 they say here's 47 ronin april fools everyone well and it does well apparently yeah, oh, on yeah. home media it actually kind of takes off a little bit and i i totally did not know this but in august 2020 so obviously you know in the middle of covid a sequel was announced to be in development with director ron yuan Production was scheduled to begin in the first quarter of 2021. Now, I was trying to look this up, and I don't know if production has started or not um, this year, but Universal, due to how well this film did on home media, not theatrically, they're looking to do some type of sequel. Now, my guess is they're not going to throw another $200 million. And if you're looking at this director, more than likely, it's one of, you know, Universal is really good about taking some of their films and then just creating sort of that direct-to-streaming, direct-to-video market. I mean, take something like that Jason Statham remake Death Race. There's like four or five sequels of that thing that went straight to video. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they, I'll say this about Universal. They're very good about taking their product and giving it more life, you know, after its theatrical release. And in this day and age with all the streaming services, et cetera, 
who knows? You could have Netflix. I mean, what they play pay for Knives Out sequels? Five hundred million dollars? Yeah, five hundred million dollars for the second and third. Yeah, so, I don't think I don't think Forty Seven Ronin Two, which sounds so stupid when you think about it, yes. but um, you got to do a sequel to this. But you know what? Okay. Whatever. Sure. Uh, I you know maybe Netflix throws a bunch of money at it and it is cool. I don't know. Maybe Keanu Reeves comes back. You know, whatever. So I. I like you saw the sequel stuff and I could not find anything concrete that it had started or production was moving forward. And if Keanu Reeves was involved or anything like that. So we'll have to see. I don't believe that Uh, to be honest with you. I don't believe we will see 47 Ronin two in the theater anytime soon. I I don't think we will, but I got to tell you, these streaming services and everybody right now is pulling films from Netflix because they're, you know, moving over to Peacock or HBO. I mean, everybody is chasing down franchises. And to your point, if this thing is continuously doing well on Netflix and it's in the top 10 movies watched, you never know. I I don't know how it works now. I got to tell you that the world we live in, in terms of how movies are made or what decision they make. I mean, when I read that thing that Rian Johnson was getting that much money for, for two sequels, I mean, that just shows me there's, there's a lot of money out there on the table for directors to pick up and every studio is trying to get some franchise going. So, yeah, it's, if you got an idea, there's a lot of platforms for it. Oh, absolutely. So that's, I guess the background of the film you know, typical fashion, we spend about an hour kind of going through <laughs> what happened to its release, et cetera. So now we get to the good part and we get to talk about what we thought about. Well, there's film. a lot of context that needs to be put on this movie. I, I, agree. I mean, like first, yeah. like to hammer it home, they gave a first time director a hundred and seventy five million dollars. That right there is the most bewildering fact about a movie I have ever heard. And. Keanu Reeves at that time to star in it with an entire Japanese cast and to release it, to release this movie could have been the the best movie of all time. And it was not going to get back $200 million. Absolutely not. Cause we also talk about that's production budget marketing. They're going to spend another hundred to $150 million on marketing. This thing's going to have to do $400 million. Zero chance of this movie, 47 Ronin doing half a billion dollars. Zero, zero chance. Not, so, not in any market. I mean, not in any market. So the ever. business side of this movie is baffling it's that bonkers. someone gave this guy literally a blank check to make a movie about samurais in 2013. Dude, maybe that's why he's not making movies because out of that 175 million, he pocketed like 30 million of it. Somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and next thing you know, he's like, well, I don't have to work anymore. I mean, it's what I would do. Um, I don't know. So let <laughs> Brad, this is your pick. I'm going to start with you. 47 Roman from 2013 is first time watch for you. I've seen this thing a couple of times. So saw it in 3d in the theater. have watched it uh, a few times on home media. Watched the Blu-ray this week when you called an audible. Um, which, which you're not bitter about it at all. I, I, hey, dude, that monkey, not bitter about it. <laughs> yeah, let's, look, I was in a good mood. And then you brought the monkey up again. So now, all right. Now, all right so, Initial thoughts. Um, you know, like I've said, I'm a sucker for a samurai movie. This thing is um, nice to look at. 
um, especially the practical side of this movie. Uh, the CGI and special effects are, to be nice, are pretty garbage level. I there's a there's a scene with a kind of a big village kind of on a mountain that looks really bad, but then you cut to like a nice practical set that's like this village is kind of on fire and it's damaged and it looks amazing. And you're like, just do that. Don't do the other stuff. Just do that. And I believe this movie is falls into that category of like white savior guy. You know, it, it does. Um, and you know, we've seen that story played out over and over. Um, and I would never say that this movie is, is like a good movie. Um, but I think it's fun and, it's two hours and people might think, Oh, that's a long time for a samurai movie. Well, it's like, well, seven samurai is four hours long. You know, if you're into samurai movies, you know that they are slow paced and they go on for a long time. So in the grand scheme of samurai movies, this is quick. <laughs> um, but I will say it's fun. Like I had fun watching this movie. I, I don't know why, my critical brain was like, this is really dumb. And literally Keanu Reeves is literally a sore thumb in this movie and stands out as such. But again, it's fun. And I, I liked it and it didn't feel like a chore to watch this movie. And I was like, Oh, I'd definitely watch this movie again. Like what I watch. And I was trying to think like the last samurai unequivocally a better movie than this. Definitely. Yes. Agree. But if I had a choice, I might watch 47 Ronin first because it it's just like easier to watch. Like I don't have to do any heavy lifting and I know that's bad and I'm giving a movie a pass for being stupid and like, I don't know. I just, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, do. I know, it's... I know that this movie isn't that great, but I kind of dug it a lot. So here's, here's how. I think of it. Um, when when I was growing up in Wichita, Kansas, my mom would take me to the grocery store, grocery shopping with her. And she would always go to this generic grocery store. And I can't remember what it was called. I just, I just remember it was huge, right? And she would always go after this generic brand called Always Save. And I, I think they still make it today. So I, I remember it's like the it. Kroger, like the Kroger brand, like the super brand or whatever it's called. Yeah. I don't, I, but what I remember about this is everything was just always in a yellow package, right? So it, it would be a big yellow can or big yellow container or yellow package. And it would just be labeled like what you're buying. So if you, if you're buying always say potato chips, it would just be a yellow bag and it would say potato chips on it. If, if you were getting, you know, frozen corn, it'd be in a yellow bag and it would just say like frozen corn or, or bread, just, bread in a bag, <laughs> yellow, and it said bread, right? And, and I remember walking by cans and yellow cans and it just beer. <laughs> nice. That's all, that's all it was, right? And I, I just, I remember vividly every time we go and I, I would want, hey, can, can I have Fruit Loops or Apple Jacks or something? It was, I, I would always go get the always save version where it's like apple-like rings or, you know. Do they come in a bag or were they in a box? Uh, they were in a box. It was, it was a yellow okay. box and it was always... You know, just what it was, it was the very plain version. And it's like, this is what you're getting, right? It's the always say version. So when I watched this film and like you, I, I, 
I don't know if I have as much love for it as you do, even though I know now. Well, I, love is a bit far. <laughs> it's it's one of those films that if if you're going to put this in front of me versus something else i'm always going to go okay i feel like i'm back in that grocery store and um i'm watching the always save samurai movie so that that's what it feels like it's it's very generic there's nothing to it i i don't think the cgi is good i think all the money went into the practical effects and everything else obviously and into the reshoots and there are aspects of it that look really good but as soon as this movie is over, it's like zero calories. I, I mean, it's just empty calories. I, I can't remember much about it. And even taking notes and then walking away for, for an hour, it was kind of hard to go back and go, well, what happened again? Um, and when did this happen, et cetera? But it, it is very much a, it can be on in the background. You can turn and look at it a couple of times. And I don't think you miss anything. Like if you wanted to pick a movie that you could almost take a nap to and during and kind of wake up at different parts, I don't think you miss much at all. But that, and here's the other thing. The movie feels like it's directed by a guy named Carl. So it's the whitest <laughs> Japanese movie you can make. And Keanu Reeves does not belong in this thing at all. I mean, you can truly see where the studio and the director are fighting. And I really feel like every time Keanu is uh, Keanu Reeves is on the screen, his character of Kai, it takes away from Oishi, um, who really is the heart and soul of the film. Like Sonata as an actor and a character in this film, I'm I'm just all on board. And it aggravates me sometimes when Keanu comes on because I'm like, man, I, I want to go back. The father-son relationship stuff should be front and center of this movie. Absolutely. And I mean, even even if you don't know the true story that a father and son committed suicide after assassinating this Lord, I mean, that that is a fascinating film. I could totally understand why Carl was really attracted to the subject matter and says, hey, let's let's make Kingdom of Heaven or Gladiator and and do it off of this tale. So I totally get the draw and the attraction to the story, but I also can see where the studio is like, oh, you need a white guy in here and you need some CGI and then we can sell this thing. So this movie 100% is, is two visions at odd at odds. Yeah. Right? And you can definitely see those two bashing heads continually in this movie because it does feel like the Keanu Reeves stuff is literally like, you know, just thrown in here and just, oh, it's horrible. Like it just, it, it almost throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. And you're like, Oh, luckily it's Keanu Reeves, which I find him, you know, fascinating to kind of see on screen. Cause I, I like him as a character in most things, but in here it's like, dude, like, I don't know. It slaps you. What across is the, it's like somebody took a wet, fish and slapped you across the face and you're like why'd you slap me with a wet fish like i don't that's my reaction when i see keanu reeves on screen here like what why are you doing this to me and the love story is 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 terrible yeah it you know it's forced um you know they that was one of the things they tried to get um kind of hammer home in the movie and it's like you read about these things that they wanted to add back in the movie and they didn't do it in like subtle ways they literally got out, like came at you with like a big truck and just said, here's the stuff we want. And it's coming right at you. Like, we're not going to be subtle about anything. We're like literally slapping you across the face with it. Yep. Um, and to me, I, I, I think again, 
there is a better version of this movie without Keanu Reeves. Um, I see the business decision, obviously, to have him in this movie, but not in 2013, you know, like in 2015, sure. Like put Keanu Reeves in this movie. Um, no, don't give Carl no, $30 million. I, I, I'm, I'm talking about on the and... business side. Like, oh, yes. Well. But again, I think this tale deserves to be cast by Japanese people up and down and that's it. And literally they were getting there. Like they were so close and then they had to shoehorn in Keanu Reeves. And then not only did they say, Oh, he has a small bit part. We have to go back and make him the focal point of the, the story. And, and those things are at odds because the father, son, you feel like, Oh, that is the thing I want. But at every turn, this movie says, no, you want Keanu Reeves and this love story and this half-breed thing. And you're like, no, that's – I've seen that before. I, I know white savior guy is going to be fine. I want this other thing. But then, you know, because even with the father's son, like he has a wife and she's like an interesting character. And you're like, oh, I wish I could be with her more. And you're like, no, because of Keanu Reeves. But that's not the only cardinal sin. I mean, yes, I agree with you 100% too many choices within the plot that just goes, we need to put focus on Keanu Reeves. That shouldn't have happened. The other cardinal sin of this film is the CGI. So I, I do want to talk about the computer generated imagery in this film for a second. And right out of the gate, you get a fox, a white fox, a wonky white fox that looks just horrible. It looks like, come on, dude. Like it looks like someone didn't move the mouse and like a screensaver popped up. It it's does. Like, Absolutely. It's, yeah. for, and for 2013, um, because again, if you go back and watch the Hobbit films with what Weta was doing, you know, from their practical effects and digital effects, I mean, it, they were fantastic. And that's even after Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But, and, and people might say, oh, that's not a fair comparison. Well, yes, it is. Because they're spending they the same amount of money. $175 million yeah. out of the gate on this. But so you, you get a wonky white fox that's followed by your first big creature. So I do you know what that thing was? I, I had no idea. It looked like a bison or woolly mammoth or mad cow. I couldn't make it out. You, you, I, I, it was so over-designed and, and to the point where, it, again, it, of course, it looks terrible and it was over-designed. So I could never really tell what it was like. Did it have four legs? Did it have six? I, I don't know. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah, you get this one kind of cool shot uh, where it has like eight eyes, four on each side or something. It's blinking. But the rest of it is a CGI blur. And then the rest of the CGI you get, um, and I, I'm just going to go down the list here, the witch's cloak floating a lot and her hair moving around. And again, it's it's nothing really cool or inspiring. It's just... It just the scene that stands out with that is when she is feeding the woman... She tries to feed yes, the woman with the chopsticks in this yeah. in the hair. It looks so bad. Yep. Like I almost was like, oh, is this movie suddenly a Pixar movie? Because it like is a hundred percent not hair. It's like it is it is really bad. So then here comes sort of the Lord of the Ring elements, I'll call them, because they're chasing down this stuff. You you get this big samurai, which I actually thought was really cool. The big silver samurai that's I don't yeah, know, 15 yeah feet tall yeah so i remember and of course you do uh dragon the bruce lee story yes when bruce lee's having the nightmares and he's fighting the big that's what that reminded me of and i was like oh man that's that's awesome like this guy is menacing you know he reminds me of the mountain from 
Game, Game of Thrones, Thrones and yeah. all this stuff. And he's very menacing. Cool design. I, I wrote that down right here. Great look. Menacing. And gets accidentally blown up at the end. Yes. That was I was <laughs> I paused so because I knew you were gonna say the death of this character is literally a throwaway. Oh, he blew away. He got blown up and like shattered. And accidentally. I'm like, well, well accidentally. Accidentally. That guy was literally like a huge menace and you blew him up and he's gone in two seconds. You, you keep leaving out the word accidentally blew up. Oh yes. Yes. Accidentally. Yes. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Total that wa- to me total is offensive. Of, like, it is total waste of a good concept to go, to go through all that trouble, even introducing this menace in the first act and in the third act, not to have the Keanu Reeves, big tall samurai second showdown where he takes him out is some is one of the biggest mistakes I think I've ever seen in a movie. It's you have to have that climactic battle and it has to end in a satisfying way. Like, yeah, that I, I like this movie a lot, but that is indefensible. It absolutely. And so it doesn't stop there because the studio is really going for it. Now you, when Kai gets sold, I think to the to the Dutch traders as a slave or something of that nature. Uh, Another cool character comes up. Yeah, which tattooed guy, right? Says, "What are you doing here?" Blah blah blah. That's it. And Sonata has to go in and find Keanu Reeves. And that guy is on the box art. Yes, and he's in it for twenty seconds, maybe, maybe, okay. maybe. So Dutch pirate tattooed twenty seconds, but he made the poster. Um. But Kai is fighting a reject troll from Lord of the Rings. So this is really where you're getting some Lord of the Rings. No, it's CGI. the it's the Hobbit. You remember in the Hobbits where I think it's the first one they they run into those trolls and like the trolls have them captured. It literally looks like that exact same troll. Well, not not so what I think of it is is somebody got one of those art of books. So there's like art of <laughs> oh, Hobbit yeah. from de- so <laughs> Usually in those art of books, what I love about it is you get to see all the concept art in the transition of here's what we started with and then here's the final version of the character. And it, and it might go through like 27 different variations. This must have been variation like 12 of 28. And that's the one that Universal said, hey, can we buy that one off of you because we want to use it in our samurai film. And that's what Keanu Reeves is fighting. And then here's where I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was kind of laughing. So one of the key plot points is that Kai uh, was discovered outside of a forest and they keep bringing up the concept of Tengu. So do you know what Tengu are, Brad, from a Japanese myth? Okay. You, you probably have seen at least some of the artistic representations in like traditional Japanese folklore, but I always remember Tengu having like a red face with a long nose, bushy eyebrows. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And they would have wings. It, it kind of looked like a red demon version of Hawkman from the DC comics. Okay. So yes. that's when you, when somebody says Tengu, that's the image that pops in my face, which is, Oh, you got a red face and a sort of Pinocchio like red nose. And I, I had to go look at it again. Cause I'm, I'm like, when they say Tengu, I, I thought it was like this red face Hawkman looking guy. And I, I went back and looked at some of the old paintings and yeah, that's what it is. But when you go to the Tengu forest, you get these monks that basically look like if a fish, well, I thought if you had taken a parrot 
and it was in a a house fire and all the feathers were burnt off and you were to look at the parrot's face that's what these faces look like because they're kind of bird like okay yeah but, but they look like parrots. bird fish are kind of maybe close yeah but they, they look like parrots that were actually burn victims that were put on top of a monk's body and um at this point i'm just not wowed at all by any of the cgi and i'm more confused and again in my head i'm thinking tengu is is supposed to be this but we've got burnt parrot victim monk guy well and it looks like we're playing it on a playstation 2 as well like it's really bad yeah. cgi now you get you get the dragon at the end which I think is a great looking dragon from a Japanese myth. I, I mean, they nailed that part of it, but again, it clearly looks like a CGI dragon and it looks like Keanu Reeves is just swinging a sword around in the air at nothing. And they're just having this cool Japanese. Yeah, he's, looking... someone, is, someone is swinging a long pole with a tennis ball on it and he's swinging <laughs> he's at swing, it for yeah. sure. But you know, those are just examples where as much as we're talking about sort of the cardinal sin of making Keanu, Keanu Reeves sort of front and center of this film doesn't work. The CGI and sort of the blatant ripping off of Lord of the Rings. And, and again, I think they get it right when you're looking at what I would consider sort of a Japanese representation of a dragon, but then the Tengu, no, I, burnt parrot. Yeah. I mean, the dragon close. is very like serpent like and you know, moves very serpent like, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's, there's it's no weird artistry. because like there's no artistry to CGI <sighs> requires if it's gonna wow you, there there is an art to it. It requires artistry. And even the CGI background, which I, I thought this was kind of weird, is when I'm looking at the CGI background, to your point, if you got some amazing sets, uh when he fights the big silver samurai um within that first uh I don't know tournament it looks yeah where beautiful. he's wearing the red armor yeah it's it's a practical set it looks beautiful but anytime you get a CGI backdrop I'm sitting there going man just go back to matte paintings because there's no artistry whatsoever in your C CGI at any point be it in the characters none of it is memorable um or even in the backdrop when you're trying to create a CGI Japan of this time period it it doesn't look good yeah, and we've all seen it in movies done way better. And when you have that frame of reference, even within this own film, like the thing is, is you have these amazing sets and then you have these trash CGI <laughs> like temples that are, I mean, again, it looks so bad that literally you go from one scene to the next and it, just stands out so much because again practical and then terrible cgi i, I, I don't jarring. know man it is so jarring because you're right you get a beautiful practical set it takes you out of the movie every time yeah absolutely so you're like oh yeah i'm wearing i'm watching a movie a because this half-breed white guy is saving everyone and these cgi uh graphics look like you know from like 25 years ago like Terminator 2 looks way better than this movie ever thought it could. Their solar babies looks better than some of the CGI Damn right effects. it does. <laughs> so, and, and here's the other thing that it leads me to, and I, I want your opinion on this, because this is the other question I had was, you talk about this, and you're absolutely right. If you want to sit down and watch classic samurai cinema, go watch Seven Samurai, but you got to have four hours, right? 
this thing is just under two hours, I believe, um, depending on which cut you go to. But even the longer cut is only like two hours and three minutes or something of that nature. What what did you really think about the pacing of the film? Because I kind of had a problem with it. I mean, 25 minutes into the film, and the film's called 47 Ronin. So you're, you're again, always save samurai. That's what I'm expecting here. But 25 yep. minutes into the film, you get half a sword fight. Not even, you know, it's just, it goes on for a minute or two. It's over. And one CGI monster. And it takes you about 33 minutes to get to the death of the Lord in the creation of the 47 Ronin. And those first 30 minutes felt like two hours, in my opinion. Now, once he gets out of the pit. Yes. And, and yes, he starts exactly. putting the team together, right? Now mm. you've got um, an hour and 20 minutes to focus on the plan, the finding of the other, you know, 46 Ronin and how they're going to take revenge but a big chunk of that time is spent with Kai, um, like going to get Kai from the Dutch, then Kai taking them to the parrot forest, the burnt parrot forest, and then you're left with the big showdown. I mean, that's really all that happens in that last sequence. And I really, yeah. I, I really feel like the film has zero momentum. Like it takes a while to get going, and then after the 30-minute mark, it starts to get going. And for a film that's really 47 men who are going to their deaths over honor, I mean, it, it has no weight or gravitas. And I'm not saying yeah. this should be fun or anything, but um, it, there's their characters. There's no time. To really I mean, care even for there's them, but... that scene before the end where they're all kind of telling the tale on the scroll and signing their names in blood to let everyone know this was us. And that's supposed to have a lot of weight. And it does. And then they let Keanu Reeves do it. And you're like, no, this, like, no, <laughs> no, no. This white guy, I know he's earned your respect. I understand that. But Samurai and even Ronin have a code. This would never happen. Never happen. He could be the greatest person to walk the face of this earth. If he's not a samurai, he's not a part. Like, it just... You know what? But I'm okay with that if there's momentum. I, I don't know. This should be. It's type. not earned, though, at all. Nothing in this um, film. Let's be honest. Nothing well, yes, in this film yes. is earned. But if, if you're if you're a studio and, you know, this chairperson comes in and says, oh, I'm going to edit the film, right? So you had a director that was going for Gladiator, Kingdom of Heaven. She goes, no, we want a big studio, Lord of the Rings. You know, we're chasing that. You would expect them to kind of tighten the pace and make this thing move, right? But it drags in the beginning and this just as these people are coming together and you start to kind of widen your scope and get these action set pieces, et cetera, it, it really, from an editing perspective, feels like there are random set pieces kind of put together. And just as your pace starts to pick up a little bit, stop. Just as your pace, stop. And I don't know, it's, it's very jarring. Well, the one that's most jarring is there's an end set piece in a battle and they literally cut a guy's head off and they're carrying it out. It's like the battle is won. And I looked at the thing and said, Oh, there's like 22 minutes left. I'm like, <laughs> what are they going to do for the last 22 minutes? It's, it's so over. Weird. Yeah. It's weird. Battle is done. And then, you know, it goes into more political stuff about, you know, suicide and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, yes, I know that's important to this story, but we just like had kind of a cool set piece and, 
now you're taking all the air out of the room now it it again like you said it has like a cool pace and then literally like just stops and like immediately and that was the one that kind of got me i was like oh 22 minutes that's that's rich like come on guys we gotta we gotta hurry this up like we got the guy's head in a bag let's finish it up yeah and and honestly as soon as when when they were i should say when oishi frees kai from the you know slavery then you get that sequence of them running across you know soldiers in the town it's really starting to build up momentum until you go to to burnt parrot forest town whatever um and then it starts to recover and then you get that climax and then it just feels like it's tripping over itself i mean if if you take a step back and just even think about it for a second to your point it doesn't really get going for the first 30 minutes and then even you got the sequence that sort of happens in the middle that I guess is okay. But the way it ends, it's wow. Just the pacing on this thing. You, you can definitely feel that whoever did edit it. And obviously it's this universal chairperson had no idea what they were doing. In my opinion. With all that being said, I still kind of like it. <laughs> I, <laughs> like I, I do. Yeah, I don't no. know why I do. Well, I could see why people would look at this. And again, you, you switch your brain off and, and you can enjoy it. And it comes down to, and, and I think a lot of people do enjoy this because of the fight choreography and some of the action sequences. And, and again, that um, Dutch slavery sequence, I think is a fantastic action sequence, how they're escaping and all the stuff that's going down. I love them sneaking into the castle. I mean, oh yeah. Yeah. That, that, I is, mean, that is a so cool little fun. setup. Yeah. I mean, the, so it's, I don't know. It also has the best version of a dude being taken out um, on the top of a wall when he's standing there and some guy just pulls him over and you see his feet. I mean, it happens quick. Uh, for some reason, that just stood out in my head. And then it has these little inventive moments when they're sneaking in. So as an example, when they're shooting arrows at the guys at the top and the arrow will go through like their head or neck or something and pin them up against a post. So it makes them look like they're still watching guard. Still on just, their post, yeah. yeah. I love all that little sequence of them invading the castle. Um, and your your big climactic showdown, the dragon thing with Kai, not so impressive. But Oshi, uh, Oishi and um, the bad guy, uh, I, I think they have some good sword work. But it still feels like your typical American action. I mean... Yeah, it's nothing... It's not it's not that impressive. You know what could have been impressive? The giant samurai versus Keanu Reeves. Like that could have been his one thing in this movie. Be like, oh yeah, you're gonna have this showdown that you had in the first yeah. act. Let's let's call it back in the third act and let's finish this. Yeah, I agree. But it's I, accidentally I, blowed up. I, for for an American action film, I actually think, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this. So it's it's a typical American action film where there's a lot of editing. So they don't let the action breathe. Yeah. You get a couple emotions, edit. Couple emotions. Well, this was edit. this was the hotness back in 2012, 2013 was the quick cutting and and all that. So this is right around that time frame. Well, I you know, people say that and I think if you go back and look at the eighties and nineties, I, I think that's always been American action because you're always led I mean, your main star isn't doing the action sequence. It's usually a stunt performer. And so even if your main star is doing something, and I really do think Keanu Reeves handles the sword well, and he's doing a lot of these sequences, but they're going to do two or three different um, 
I don't know, cuts uh, or movements, and then they're going to edit the next sequence, it, you're not going to get somebody who is going to even go for like three or four, five, six or seven beats of letting something breathe the way that I think everybody else in the world lets action unfold. Traditional American action films are always based on editing around the action. And this isn't as bad as the Bourne movies or anything of that nature. It's just, it's a typical American action film. And for what it is, I think it's good. Um, you get to see some impressive things, but it's, if, if you're a fan of Asian cinema in general, and you even look at any of those old um, Akira Kurosawa films or Zatoichi, I mean, the swordplay in those films just put this one to shame. But again, if you're- And those you're, movies are 50 years old. <laughs> I know, but it's, I, I don't think audiences- um, and, and I don't know how your wife is like, I, I know Tabitha on occasion, if I really get pumped about an action film and I'm like, Oh my God, did you see that sequence to her? She goes, if the action goes on too long, I just check out. And, and yeah. I, I get that with some people. So I think the quick editing and the stylized version of action might render the majority of the population like that. That's what they're looking for. But not me. I mean, give me. <laughs> give me Jackie Chan doing of course yes yes yeah I, or or you know what what makes Samuel Hung Donnie Yen all those guys but but even the Asian cinema um in general they they do action sequences and they let it breathe I'm not looking for a 10 minute no cut fight sequence um but I am looking for nice some, yeah I'm looking for something a little bit more style but I don't think the action's terrible it's just it's not memorable, except for that stealth sequence. I love them invading the castle. That's like my favorite yeah, part of the film. Yeah, even like when they're climbing up the, the mountainside and they're kind of in the camouflage. Oh, yeah, that was so cool. That was a really cool shot. I mean, there are flourishes in this movie. I think that's another one of my notes is this movie has moments and flourishes that make it like where you can see like, oh, if you just would have done that more, if you would have stuck to that that was where this movie was going to be great. Yes. But then again, this is like studio interference turned up to 11. whatever level you want. <laughs> yes. Um, and unfortunately the product is worse because of it. Yes. Well, can we talk about performances real quick? Sure. So what do you think of Keanu's performance in this? He's a it's, star. It's one of his like, you know, mysterious past blank slate. Like there's nothing really about it that I love or think is, is really that good. Um, I don't buy his relationship with the female with Mika zero. chemistry. Yeah. I don't like, I, I don't think these samurais would like the fact that they don't like him at the beginning is the way I felt like it should go. But you know, obviously the movie's not going to treat these samurais as these cold-hearted people that won't let uh, some white guy in their club. But I don't know, man. Like, it's Keanu Reeves. It's hard not to like like him, but this performance and this in this role are just wrong. And like the mysterious past stuff and this half-breed stuff. Like, come on, man. Let's just whatever. Like, if you if you're gonna have him in this movie, just let him be some random white guy that just had to stumble into Japan. And I don't know. I don't know how you make it work, but this isn't it. 
Um, I, I will say, and like, does he have magic powers or doesn't he? Like, I don't, I yeah, don't know. I, that's confusing. I, th- I think a lot of people can point to Keanu Reeves as an actor and go, he can't act. He, if you look at uh, his filmography in total, I don't think that's true. I, I do think he can give good nuanced performance. 10,000 pancakes. <laughs> have you seen the devil's advocate yes. <laughs> recently? Cause I have. And when he says something about pancakes, I think literally it's the best line delivery I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, he somewhat in some of these action films will deliver the same performance. Now you've, you've got your John wicks, the first one, not, not the others. The first one I think has a good emotional core and performance that he gives. And he does stuff like my own private Idaho that, that is just fantastic. Um, this one, I, I don't think would help support the claim that Keanu can act. Cause I don't really know what he's doing in this film. He, he kind of looks bored until he's swinging a sword. I think, I think those are the parts where Keanu lights up a little bit, but I don't know. This is this is just a, such a boring, no nothing role for him. And well, if you think about it, a first time director probably can't direct what kind of performance he wants from somebody who is, I think, a good actor. I think he has good performances in him. Um, I think overall, I'll say he's never consistent. I'll say that. I mean, I I really like Keanu Reeves, but I will also say that he is not he's he's not going to be known for his acting. I think he's going to be known for the movies that he either stars in and the franchises he's a part of. But I I can't honestly say that consistently Keanu Reeves is always knocking it out of the ballpark. Now I don't think a lot of actors are, especially when you've been in the industry for forty years. But um, I don't know. This, this one, it, it doesn't help the cause when you look at it and go, what's he doing? He's just, he just is kind of showing up. Yeah. It's still Keanu Reeves. But, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. You're, you're right. I think my main problem is, is this character just shouldn't be in the movie. So, like, yeah. whoever was the actor, I would probably have been hard on because – There's nothing to do. Yes, yes. It's a know-nothing part because – it's literally shoehorned in, in this movie. What would you think of Lord Kira? I mean, our, our bad guy. I mean, you know like, he's, he knows he's a bad guy because he's in purple. Yes. And yes. He's, he's always, I don't know, sneering. I mean, he's doing everything except twirling a mustache and rubbing his hands. Yeah. Like he's doing like the Japanese equivalent of like twirling a mustache and, yeah. and, and like, again, he never seemed menacing. You know, the witch kind of seemed way more uh, powerful than him. So he was never, I never felt like he was the big bad. I always was waiting for like, you know, everyone's got a boss and this one's mine. And then like someone else showing up at the very end to kind of show that they're pulling the strings or something. But, you know, he just seemed kind of wimpy and I was never afraid of him. Like they had the one scene where he's like, like, Robert De Niro kicking the guy, stomping the guy's head. And you're like, okay, I know what this scene is. You're trying to establish that this guy's a monster, but it really doesn't, that shoe doesn't fit on this guy very well. Yeah. You get, you get the obligatory bad guy training and he beats the crap out of his men yep. while he's training. Cause that, that's just yep. an action trope. But I got to say Craig T Nelson from action Jackson. I don't know if you remember that kind of does the same thing where he's fighting with this guy doing his karate 
And Great T. Nelson is more menacing than this guy in this film. So just, I, I'm with you. I was kind of waiting for somebody to kind of come out from the shadows. But if, if you know the story of 47 Ronin, you know that's the bad guy. Uh, again, he's, he's more of a caricature. From a performance standpoint, it all comes down to Sonata. He should, we've said this, I don't know how many times, he should have got more screen time. I mean, I think there is something way more interesting with him and his son. Um, it could have been an incredibly tragic character, and Sonata is so good in this film, but there's no depth in the script whatsoever. So I think what Sonata does with what he's given, he knocks it out of the ballpark, but he's the only one that, he's so good in it that every time he's not on screen, I'm just, I'm really wishing he would. You're asking where he is. Yeah. I mean, you're wanting him to be on the screen. Yeah. Which, you know, I know we've talked about it and it's almost to parody now, but like, I cannot wait for him to be Scorpion in Mortal Kombat because like Scorpion is one of the most complex. (laughs) This sounds so stupid that I'm going to (laughs) say this, but he's one of the most complex Mortal Kombat characters because he has like a backstory that's pretty tragic. And, um, I want to see that play out and I think he can do it. That's how good of an actor is. You want to give him that type of character and see what he does with it. Um, And again, I, this is a pretty pedestrian script, but the stuff that he gets a hold of, that's like, that's offensive to pedestrians. Like (laughs) this script is, is really bad. It's really bad. Um, So, well, speaking how bad this script is, why is the large husky Asian guy always given the comic relief in these American films? Because fat people are funny. I, I guess. What was the guy in Mulan? The cartoon? Um, I, I don't know, but it's 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 I'm, yeah, it's all over the place. And I I don't know. Is this is this because of Samo Hung? I mean, did he start this trend? Somebody saw a Samo Hung film and was like, oh, it's got to be the the husky Asian guy's got to be the comic well, and, relief. And, and the husky Asian guy never never makes it. He's always the yeah, he's, tragic, he's always gone. you know, the guy who kind of brings everyone together at the end to to kind of give them that one last push to to really, you know, make sure that they complete their mission. Yep, I agree. The the other thing that stuck out is why does so you get, you get the film and of course you get somebody who's throwing words on the screen after all of this stuff's happened and they're talking about really the tale of 47 Ronin and it's still celebrated, you know, in December, et cetera. Why does a British dude do a voiceover at the end of the film? Like, what is it with British accents? Does that by default mean? Makes it more sophisticated. Okay. Um, Can we talk about Seppuku for a minute? Yes. Yes. And then we can talk about what's going to happen next. Cause I really want to hear that, but let's go. Yes. Okay. Let's go with suicide first. Yeah. So just for those who are uninitiated to samurai films, um, specifically Asian cinema, Seppuku has been around for a while, and I've, I feel like you can't have a samurai film or this type of film without it being sprinkled in there um, in some yeah. fashion. Because it was a big deal back then for, for the Code of the Samurai. So it's always going to be explained to you. So anytime Seppuku is used in a film, somebody's going to explain to you what it is. It's like the force now. It's like, I don't need people to explain how the force works. Like it goes with the territory, but we're always going to get it. So, yeah. So just, just as for those who aren't uh, in the know of it and, and we at not a bomb like to, you know, pass on information. So I learned something this time about Seppuku because I I thought I knew everything about it, but just at a high level, it's ritual suicide by disembowelment. 
right? So um, you basically plunge a short blade, uh, traditionally a tanto, so it's like the, the short sword that they carry, into the belly and draw the blade from left to right or right to left. It's usually dependent on which is your predominant sword. Predominant hand. hand. Yeah. Um, you slice the belly open, and if the cut is deep enough, it's going to sever the descending aorta, causing a rapid, rapid death by blood loss. That's what should happen. And that part of the ritual is you releasing your spirit, okay, from your bowels. Now, you're supposed to have an assistant. So your assistant is the Kaisha Kunin, and that's the person that at the height of pain and after your spirit's released, they're supposed to decapitate you. So in all of these samurai films, you always have somebody back there with a sword, and as soon as they make the cut, then boom, head comes off, and you always see the head rolling. I mean, that's, that's in all these films. Well, here's what I learned. Fun fact. The idea of the assistant is to actually, so this is how it worked in real life. The assistant was supposed to leave a small flap of skin attached at the front next. um, So when the cut came, it wouldn't cut through your neck all the way. It would stop, leave a small flap of skin to prevent runaway heads. That's why skilled swordsmen were used. So if you had if you had an assistant and they cut all the way through your head and the head was rolling down, they weren't a, a skilled swordsman. So you you never wanted a sloppy beheading or a runaway head. That was that was like a big. So you want the head to hang there? You want it to head there. You just hang there, right? So what's amazing to me in all these samurai films, and especially the tale of the forty seven Ronin is you have this totally gruesome act. And if you go and research anything, I mean, (laughs) some of the, I don't know, artistic renderings of when seppuku was kind of big and what was going on, I mean, it's kind of fascinating. Because again, samurai were educated men. So a lot of times, this whole ritual would go on a couple of days before the act itself, and they would write poems and poetry. And there's there's this whole death literature around this whole thing. But in this film, what is really upsetting is it's just a plot point. And seppuku happens, you know, at the beginning, and then it happens amongst 47 men at the end. And the film, I I think the biggest crime of this film is it actively tries to do everything possible to take away the tragedy and the weight. So, yes, in the original tale, 46 men, you know, committed seppuku, but... Oishi and his son in the original tale, they died together. In this one, the Shogun's like, well, let's take some of the tragedy away and we're going to pardon his son so that he gets to live. And, and I think that's such a disservice to the, what could have been a very dramatic moment in the film and actually provided you know, a pretty solid gut punch. Yeah, it's PG-13 as well, so we're not going to get something crazy. It doesn't have crazy. to be graphic, but I mean, just yeah. the, the again, even if you had this very, I don't know, light script that wasn't giving enough screen time between Oishi and his son, that moment might have redeemed that um, character arc a little bit and solidified that bond between the two. Not to say it's really not there, but it's kind of not there. But that was the thing that really, as, as soon as the Shogun pardons his son, I'm like, dude, you actively are trying to take away anything memorable about this film at all you're trying to make it as vanilla as possible and i don't know that that really bothered me at the end so is that the sequel setup i guess his son (laughs) is out there you know creating his own 47 ronin part two well 
And so there is hints that Keanu Reeves's character is otherworldly of some kind and maybe will be resurrect. I, I don't know. He he kind of makes it seem when speaking to his lady friend that, you know, he will search for her in another lifetime or whatever, or I mean, were they trying to hint that like, yes, I know he might be resurrected or whatever, but like he can come back or I don't know. He has superpowers. So yeah, he can do anything. But does like he never really does anything really supernatural. Like he moves like a blur thing. He does his blur yeah, thing. He does He's it like, like one time. Well, he, he does it twice, twice but yeah. come on, man. Like shoot a fireball out of your hands. Like be like Ryu or something like that. <laughs> no, I think I think he's just got his blurry movement thing. That's all yeah. he was given. What, what was your question before I brought up this this lovely fun fact about seppuku? Oh, the the sequel. Just like how they're how they're gonna do it. Like I know because again, like three hundred, they made a sequel, but I think that was was that a prequel? I don't um, remember. I I I don't know. I I remember seeing it, but I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I, the story of. 300 and whatever the sequel is, is not important, but like, I don't know, like the sequel to this just seems, there is no way there is impossible. No way that, yeah, I, wherever they go with it, I don't know. Now from a film perspective, obviously they could do a sequel by doing something with the sun. What they do with that, I don't know, but no, I, again, if it's a sequel, it's going to be the equivalent to like death race two or three or whatever that universal is sort of churning out there. Um, which which would be fine. I mean, heck, they made uh, what was the Man with the Iron Fist? They made two of those movies. I mean, they oh, could, they did. Yes. Yeah, they could yeah. certainly make uh, a a Ronin film out of this and continue as a franchise. But you know what? If they do, just go total action, make it as schlocky as possible. Just Absolutely, go like, for it, man. But you know, my my preference would be give Carl, you know, Carl one hundred seventy five dollars. And, and go make an artistic version of this film and cut the CGI crap. Out. I would like to see his original vision. I do too. Because I honestly, like for a first time director, I think there's some good stuff here. There's some, there's, there's like pockets of brightness. Some might say there's like short film type stuff in here. That's yes. like, Oh, this guy's directing short films, not enough to make a two hour movie, but like vignette sort of set pieces maybe that, you know, cause it's nothing is like really that cohesive. So it definitely feels like a bunch of short movies kind of put together. If you look at it that way. No. And I'm still, like you said at the beginning, I am absolutely amazed that this thing got green just on paper. How did anybody look at this thing and go, we're going to put that much money into it. Given the first time director, Keanu Reeves, um, and, and even then in the beginning, I don't think he had a huge part. They really amped up his part in the film that we have today as a result of the reshoots and everything else. But Yeah, they doubled down. Not only did they like set a budget, but then they basically doubled down and added another $50 million and, and said, let's make this better. And, yeah, and Keanu Reeves I, was not pulling anybody into the box office for the last five years leading up to this thing. So no. And I don't know if – and all that stuff they added is the worst parts of the movie. Oh, I agree. They made a worse – they spent $50 million more to make a worse movie. Yeah, it's crazy. And then to, but, ha- to have John Wick come out on a lower budget and make all that money and turn it into yeah. a franchise, it's, it's Hollywood's weird, man. But 
Still kind of like it. <laughs> You're crazy. I don't know. There, there's aspects. I, I didn't hate watching it again, but it's again, it's one of those things. If you're going to sit down and you go, well, you're going to do a podcast and you're going to talk about it. I, I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot more to complain about than there is to champion, which is a problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there's still some cool things in this. And again, there, to your point, there's little, I don't know, pockets that I really found myself enjoying it. And then the rest of it, it was, okay, what's going on? Like, can we get to the next set piece or whatever it is you're going to do? Cause I'm, I'm not digging this right now. And luckily, like, because after like that 33 minute mark where they kind of have to go, everything moves so fast until it, well, until it doesn't, but then everything moves so fast until it, but you know, if you're not enjoying the part you're in right now, like it's going to switch pretty soon. <laughs> Give it five so, minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's then like if you are enjoying college. something, give it five minutes and you won't. So yeah. Um, well, anything else? Any any other thoughts on this one? Again, one hundred and seventy-five billion dollars for this movie. Nuts. So, out of all the films that we talk about, is this the one that hurts your brain the most? I, I'll say this: it does me. Like of all the budgets and think this one, if 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 we're talking about all the films that bombed, that to me it was like, dude, it was so obvious. This is the one. Oh, absolutely. So I was kind of brainstorming like, oh, we should do, you know, after a certain period of time, like what we've learned about, you know, why movies flops, like how to build a bomb essentially. Yeah. And my first thing was like, give a first time director $175 million and your movie will absolutely bomb. Yeah, pretty much. I think so. Yeah. Especially about samurai. <laughs> like yeah. I love samurai. Well, <laughs> that we- is not a mainstream sort of, Give uh, give give your first time director named Carl one hundred and seventy five million dollars and make him go make an Asian epic, right there. That in and of itself, bomb, right there. Absolutely. So, uh, Brad, I'm going to ask you the question since the title of our podcast or little show here is not a bomb. Brad, it, we just got done talking about the Keanu Reeves epic, forty seven Ronin from twenty thirteen. So what's your verdict, man? Is this thing a bomb? And we tore it apart, and we said all the stuff that we didn't like about it, but I still had fun. I I hate myself for saying that. I hate myself because I shouldn't. <laughs> I know I shouldn't. I have so much that I hate. Not hate. Something that I, is wrong because, it. you know, what, 20-some episodes ago, I was the one going, dude, it's so much fun, and things are just happening, and you're like, No. Didn't like it. And now we come across stuff like this and you're like, hey, I'm a sucker for samurai, though. Like, you know, full disclosure, I have a samurai tattoo. Like, yeah, I, I so this is I, made for you. Yeah. So it's not a bomb. Not a it bomb. is. Really, it really is a bomb. But it's to me, it's not a bomb. You're, you're putting in the not a bomb category, though. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I hey, look, if you like, you know, Cheerios or you like you know, um, Fruit Loops or Cinnamon Toast Crunch. If you want the premium brand cereal, this is not the movie for you. Now, if you're okay with the Always Save version and you, you want the generic samurai film, not much to remember, but you're, you're just going to check your brain at the door. This movie's for you. But I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you, Brad. I, I can't sit here and say I haven't watched this thing like two or three times. I have. Uh, 
I'll watch it again at some point because there are parts of it I like, but I can't sit here. And to me, this kind of falls in that category with The Last Action Hero, uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film that we talked about. There are things that I like about The Last Action Hero in this one, and I will always go back and probably watch it, but I can't sit here and say that this thing is not a bomb. The, 47 Ronin is a bomb through and through. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like you. I kind of have fun with aspects of it, but I can't sit here and, and be honest and say, yeah, go out and rent it. I mean, I, I can think of a gazillion other films that are way better than this. That You're not wrong. You're yeah. not wrong. And, and this is one of those that if it's on, you're, you're not hurting your brain by watching it, but at the same time, there's, there's a couple other films I would much rather you make sure you saw before you visited this one. Oh, like I don't really watch movies on network TV anymore, but like, could you imagine if this comes on TNT at like four 30 on a Saturday with commercials? Oh, that's a great nap, Troy. That is oh, a great is. nap. No, that's what taking. I said. This is the, you're absolutely right. This is the type of film that if it was two o'clock on a spring summer day, and I'm sitting in a recliner. It's on network. T- that thing comes on. Dude, it's comfort oh, food. Yeah, it's, uh, again, it's like a just generic brand of potato chips. You're going to munch on it a Enjoy little bit. Enjoy your dad afternoon right yeah, there. You're going to go in and out of it. But, I mean, it, for me, it's a bomb. It's a total bomb. So Yeah, and the best part is you're going to know exactly what's going on, whether you're asleep or whether you're awake. So. Yeah, you're not missing much. So. All right, sir. Um, should we? We did get a little bit of listener email. I thought I kind of wanted to bring that one up. If you got a second, you can go ahead and bring that up because I don't have my telephone with me. Okay. Well, so our good friend Sammy had wrote in after listening to an episode we did under the skin. So just a a little um, I don't know rehash. We did that one with our good friend Josh on the show. It was it was our time to kind of talk about transgressive cinema and. Full disclosure, Under the Skin is the type of film I always would just champion to bring on a show like this because everybody's going to bring something to it. Now, I personally, I take that type of cinema and I grade it much harder. And you and Josh absolutely loved Under the Skin. It wasn't for me, but that doesn't mean I'm going to shy away from it. I I mean, I I love those type of films because I think they're just better dialogue and discussion. And I think Sammy's email is a great example of why we even do the podcast because you can bring up a film like this. It's, it's not 47 Ronin. It, I mean, Under the Skin is actually trying to say something. And, and The fall might have been, you know, one of those, but, you know. Could have been, yeah, um, except for the monkey thing. But listen, <laughs> this is from Sammy. Very simply told, the film is also about the inherent destruction that mankind wreaks upon itself. We destroy what we don't like, understand, dismiss, even if we destroy things only emotionally, i.e. the Pearson character or the child. Think about this. Most, if not all, children go through a phase of meanness before they mature and understand human emotions and feelings. The movie, I think, is very self-explanatory in what it's trying to get across. Go straight to the sexual aspects of the film and that she is selecting, stalking those that are weak by using her body. In this way, it can be seen as sin in a biblical sense and that a person has to pay for these sins. But also, she changes with the Pearson character. It's almost like putting an injured animal down. Empathy, as we know, is mostly a human emotion, but certain animals show empathetic behavior. So it's a bit callous of us all to think she wouldn't transcend her nature and develop potential emotional development. But it makes you wonder why. I think the genius of the film, honestly, is like most transgressive cinema. 
It gets people talking, and that is a great example of what I look for in a story, regardless of how it's told. It transcends the format and gets the juices flowing. I love all films, as you know, but I think what makes transgressive cinema stand out is the inquisitive nature of the format. It doesn't always have to be shock and awe to get our attention. It could be sadness, sex, violence, madness, etc. It's all these elements that make us ask a simple question, what is our purpose? I doubt we will ever know, but it's also a question that will fascinate me until I'm in the next plane of existence, if in fact exists. So that's a little excerpt from Sammy's. I got to tell you, I read that oh boy. email. Absolutely loved that email. And, and I love Sammy's perspective on it because, again, it adds another layer to that film. And while I just don't connect with it and it doesn't do it for me, I get so excited to read you know, about a film that somebody gets that out of it. And it, I don't know, just makes me happy we, we even talked about it. Yeah. But also, like, even a movie like that we did, the very second episode was Coneheads. And, of course, you think, oh, I'm going to watch Coneheads. Going to be this, remember that skit from SNL? And then you get into it, and it's like kind of a satirical take on immigration, and it's saying all these things. And, like, that was shocking to me how poignant that movie was that I just kind of wrote off as this dumb SNL movie. So like movies have that ability to get like create this reaction inside of you and make you think, and maybe stuff's there and maybe things aren't there. You know, the shining has been one of those movies that people examine up and down and left and right. And, you know, is it Kubrick? Like, uh, you know, admitting that he, he felt fake the moon landing and all these things. And, you know, when someone tells you those theories, you can start seeing that in the movie and, and maybe it's there, maybe it's not there. Like, I don't know. That's the, that's the thing I enjoy about this medium the most is your opinion, my opinion, Sammy's opinion, Josh's opinion. We can all look at the same thing and have four different reactions and four different opinions and, all four of those are correct. And, you know, it, it is one of those things that, again, maybe maybe under the skin isn't for you or maybe it's going to take a little bit longer and you're going to have to to really kind of give it another shot. And and, and at some point in time, that, that switch will click for you. But the same could go for me. I can watch it again another time and absolutely hate it. Like, you know, it's just like, it's so fluid and so time of when you see it, like, and, and like, I don't know, like imagine if you have lost a child and you saw that movie, what kind of reaction you would have to under the skin. Like, again, you're taking, you're bringing all your baggage, good or bad to a movie and it can affect you in so many different ways. Like, you know, uh, no, I, I know, sometimes yeah. sometimes like I see like a father son relationship in movies and like, you know, I think about you and your father and like I still have my dad and I'm blessed for that. But knowing that you like and that that like gets to me because I'm like, oh, you know, like it, it, not to bring sorry, not to bring up the father. But, you know, no, no, no. those yeah, things yeah. like like get me knowing that other people don't have that aspect of their life and like. 
And that's a disparate aspect than you would have. But, you know, it's just, to me, it's like fascinating the reaction and the opinion that arise from people seeing the same thing. Like we're all watching the same thing and our opinions in can vary infinitely. No, I agree. I, anytime you watch a film, you come to the table with an unconscious bias. And to your point, it's based on your experiences, right? So I do get a reaction out of some films and I don't know where it comes from. And I will find out, oh, I, I think I'm reacting that way because of my relationship with my father or my mother or my wife or my kids. So a- anything with a father and daughter, it's always going to get me. Anything with father and son. 47 Ronin. I think one of the things that frustrated me so much is knowing that tale and hoping that they would deal with sort of that son's devotion to the father. And it just totally gets glossed over. And at the end, it's totally kicked out. I was so disappointed with that because I think there's something there. So to your point, I'm so curious about what this film was going to be if if Carl just didn't have studio interference. But um, no, I, I love that email because the the best thing about movies, it's, I don't know, it's the, to me, it's the great equalizer. You can go up to a complete stranger and you can start talking about films and you can discover people's unconscious bias and um, it's almost like a litmus test, right, of their personality and likes, dislikes. But, uh, man, hey, there are movies I love and people are like, you're nuts. And there are movies that other people love. And I'm like, man, you're nuts. But that's that's the fun part of it is exploring all that. So, um, Sammy, thank you for that email. I mean, not only do you put uh, together just an amazing podcast with the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, you, Todd, and Will. But, dude, you got some writing skills. That, w- that was fantastic. So Yeah, I I had to read that like twice to co- kind of comprehend what he was saying. I did too. I, there was a, there was a lot to unpack with that email. My, uh, my dumb brain was like, what, wait, what? So, <laughs> so can we talk about uh, the next film? Yes, we can. Okay. So today is April 6th and we're recording a little bit late because some things came up obviously, but tomorrow is April 7th and April 7th is a huge day, right, Brad? Yes, it is. <laughs> it is a huge day. It's it, a huge day for you and someone else. Well, yes. So I get excited about April 7th every year because it is none other, none other than Jackie Chan's birthday. And we celebrate it in this house every year, big time. So we always have a movie marathon. We did this uh, movie marathon just this last Saturday. Um, had some of Cameron and Angel's friends over and, and Tyler and I. We, we started at 10 a.m. and went to about... 10 30 11 p.m and just watch jackie chan movies all day it was it was an absolute blast but we get to do my pick next week and in honor of jackie chan's birthday and i know this is so weird you're probably thinking well there's not a film jackie chan ever did that technically was a bomb and you know what i would agree with you but unfortunately there were a couple of films that got released and people just didn't take to them and so i wanted to talk about I'm, i'm so excited about this brad because not only are we going to talk about Jackie Chan, but we're also going to talk about our good friend Sam Hung, because he's been on the podcast, obviously, a couple of times. And here's what I'm really excited about. We're going to also talk about Yoon Biao. So we are going to tackle 1988's just most, it's one of Jackie Chan's best movies of all time. But from 1988, we are going to talk about Dragons Forever. And it is the last film that Sam Hung, Jackie Chan, and Yoon Biao did together. So I, I don't know about you. Now, 
I, I have to just double check and I'm only I asking. have it. Yes. Yes. You I have, have it. it. Okay, good. And for those playing along, um, I will say this, it's a little bit hard to get a hold of. I'm sure you can find it out there in some fashion. There's actually, um, if you're in the UK or if you have an all region player, 88 films, uh, did a fantastic dragons forever Blu-ray release. And I got to tell you, if you're looking for the definitive version of that film, that's the one to get. But there's also a really good Korean uh, version that's, you know, just the film only and a couple of trailers. But this, this thing's been circulating out there for a little bit. And it's not hard yep. to find. Um, but it, again, if you have an all-region player, I cannot recommend enough the 88 Films um, release of Dragons Forever. It's it's the best one. But we, we get to talk about Jackie Chan. I'm so excited. I know. I know. I will say also, Troy, my Hong Kong Rescue Blu-ray of Hard Boiled finally came in. And I watched it, and I was so excited to have a high-definition, hard-boiled copy in my hand. And it looks so good, and it sounds so good. It's it's per, it's the best $20 I've spent in a long time. Yes, it took a little while to get there. And I've got uh, – uh, so what's funny is we watched the Hong Kong Rescue Edition of Drunken Master 2 on Saturday. Dude, the picture quality on that thing was fantastic. And the subtitles, they even subtitled the music. It was the it was the most accurate version of subtitles I've seen of that film. And I that's actually even, getting a proper re- release soon too, though, right? So it'd be cur- I'd be curious to see. Well, Warner Brother Warner Brothers Archive, Archive is going to do a release of it, so the print and the scan should be actually really good. But I gotta say, there's not going to be any special features on it. I I think even the subtitling is going to be the old theatrical um, subtitles <clears throat> um, that are burned in. Yeah, I. I just would be curious to see like the, the quality comparison. I, I would just, too. That, that Hong yeah. Kong um, rescue version, it's got two versions of drunken master. So the Hong Kong release, the international release, and then you get a third version, which is the Miramax legend of the drunken master. Plus all the special features. If, if you haven't gone over to that website, go check it out. And um, I've, I've bought four or five movies off of them. He's getting ready to do the killer and yes and so yeah there it will take a while so be patient it will take a while to get there but brad you can vouch for it now i mean the supplements the picture quality the audio i mean it is a fantastic release right it's worth the wait yes okay good so brad if anybody wants to give us feedback and i don't know share their thoughts on the keanu reeves epic 47 ronin from 2013 how do they get a hold of us and, and how do they even, you know, send us some feedback about the episodes or recommend bombs for us to review? Yeah, that is not a bomb pod at gmail.com. Um, we are also on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, not a bomb pod on all those. Um, we appreciate everyone reaching out. Um, Troy and I have everything kind of planned out to the end of August. Um, so, you know, we hopefully, make sure all those movies are available and ready. So um, yeah, we're, but we're still taking um, recommendations and feedback and all that. So. Yeah. So for uh, this year we will do um, as an example, October will be totally dedicated to scary movies. So we're looking for some recommendations for that as well. Um, because to Brad's point, all the films that we're talking about, the fall through is for a loop. We both kind of thought it was just out there, but it's not. So we, we will revisit that, but we decided to kind of do a long runway to make sure that a, um, we could get the film B that you could see the film to play along that it was out there in general circulation. 
So we. Oh, and and we are still kind of collecting email addresses for our upcoming newsletter that is going to happen at some point in time. Um, if you go to notabombpodcast.com slash newsletter, uh, you can sign up for that. Um, that will kind of get you some of our friends um, inside on some things. The listener or the, the subscriber to our newsletter also kind of get like an inside path of what we are doing on the show coming up um, some kind of theme months coming up. So yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're just trying to be a little bit more inclusive with our circle of, of friends and our listeners. Um, and I thought that was a good way to just kind of play in that realm a little bit. So um, if you're interested, head over there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we hope to get that up in the next coming weeks. Uh, for us, just trying to get that off the ground and the first template out. Um, once we get through, you know, that hump. Yeah, the first one. Yeah, they'll come pretty quick. But uh, if if you enjoy the podcast too, please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, as Brad always says, share it with folks. We're, we're excited um, to meet all the new people, interact with them. So, you know, send us your, your recommendations. And again, can't say this enough. We're looking for some spooky films in October. We have a list that carried over from last year, but I'm, I'm more interested in what you guys want to hear about. And I'm, I'm definitely interested in maybe checking out some spooky films that Brad, you and I would be a first time watch for. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I kind of want to in October and we're going to go off on this, but you know, in October I always go to the same movies a lot. And I would like to change that up. So, and that's my favorite part of doing this is seeing stuff that I've never seen. Quick change being one of them. Um, 47 Ronin being another, like you <laughs> there know, you go. seeing these movies that, you know, some I know exist, some I don't. Um, so yeah, those recommendations would be welcomed. Awesome. Well, anything else, man? Do, do we leave anything? I don't think so. I think we're, I think we're good. Okay. It feels weird to, record on a Tuesday, but we did it. Congratulations. I know out of sync. We'll, we'll, we'll get back into regular, you know, I don't know, schedule, but listen folks tomorrow. Um, I don't know when this is going to get released. Hopefully we get it released on Jackie Chan's birthday, but don't we'll forget, get it released on Jackie yeah. Chan's birthday. Don't worry. Don't forget to celebrate Jackie Chan's birthday, April 7th. Everybody should just, you know, be getting ice cream cake and, and watching Jackie Chan movies and listen to Wait, our, what. Yeah. So before we go, yeah, I don't, I don't know this answer. I maybe probably should, but I don't. Okay. What's your favorite Jackie Chan movie? Drunken Master 2. Okay. Hands down. I, I think it's one of the best films ever made. Okay. Okay. Hands down. Yep. So we'll, <laughs> we'll talk in detail about it next next uh i'm sure we will show yep we'll, we'll okay. rank our jackie jam movies or for you for you tomorrow i will i will watch drunken master 2 awesome there you go man i was um, gonna watch police story but for you i'll watch drunken master 2 because it's been a long time it needs some love it does so listen to our other friends um check out everybody at the vh at vhs files podcast listen to um on our website we've also got friends with cinefits that's a great podcast. I just did a David Lynch episode. It's a lot of fun. Um, also check out Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema as well as Night of Living Podcast. Brad's or any others we need to kind of push out there? I think that's it. Okay. So I don't know if you're That's listening. all the shilling we're going to do. Okay, that works. I don't know if you're listening in the morning, afternoon, evening. Um, hey, have an awesome week. It's Jackie Chan week. Can't wait to talk dragons forever. And, uh, you know, we'll... We'll catch you next time. Thank you. Have a nice day.